If you will, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Every generation of Christians has the responsibility to guard and defend the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible. This necessity, in my opinion, is driven by our human tendency to drift. One of the reasons that we need confessions written over and over and over again is because we as human beings have a tendency to drift, to redefine terms, to redescribe things that benefit us. So in every generation, we have a necessity to clarify. You see, a central question for, for all of us as biblical counselors is whose authority, whose thoughts, whose words, whose wisdom will guide our practice? You see, the Bible deserves what I call primacy and supremacy for our doctrine. We all know that. Knowledge of God, his will for man, how God intends for his will to be carried out in daily life in a sin-sick world. But sufficiency is a way of saying that the Bible has everything that we need to know in order to govern our lives in a God-glorifying and hope-filled way. You see, the Bible... It governs our lives with the full knowledge of the effects that sin has upon humanity, both body and soul. The decay of the body, the blindness of the heart, our propensity towards self-deception, the horrors of trauma. Those things were all known by God when he gave us his revelation in Christ and the restorative hope that is to be found in the person and the work of Christ. You see, compromise on this doctrine creates an environment where the church is susceptible to cultural principles and precepts that pervert God's word, his wisdom for understanding man, the problems that man faces, and the solutions to those problems. As created beings, it's, it's really important that we find true and accurate knowledge of ourselves in what God has revealed to be true about himself and his creation. You see, God graciously provided meaning, purpose, and value for man rooted in God's revelation of himself and the work that man was called to do. The Genesis 3 narrative really tells a story, a story that's a movement away from the particular pattern of man living dependent upon God's revelation to him. Adam and Eve failed to accurately assess and understand the purpose of creation when they diminished the sufficiency of God's revelation provided for them. And as a result, we see humanity groping about, blinded by remedies created from interpretations of reality that are shaped by worldly and earthly wisdom. My purpose tonight, my aim primarily, is to demonstrate that Genesis 3 serves as a primary paradigm of human dependence upon God's sufficient provision. And as a warning of the deceptive detriments of pursuing alternative wisdoms in defining and solving human problems. I hope to accomplish this in a few ways. Let me describe some of those to give you a basic outline of where we're going tonight. First, humanity was created dependent upon God's provision for wisdom, meaning, and purpose. That's established in the beginning. Second, once eyes are blinded by sin, it changes the way humanity interprets the created world and the way we perceive reality. 
The Bible's not simply a filter for wisdom from the natural world, but a lens by which the natural world ought to be understood. Third, humanity suffers grave consequences when we choose wisdom outside of what God has graciously provided. Fourth, God has graciously provided further wisdom and revelation in Christ that is essential for our human predicament. Genesis 3 really is the broad context for all human sufferings and human remedies. And finally, the wisdom of God has provided in Christ and his word that, that God has provided in Christ and his word is sufficient for daily living. Despite the depths of our human experience, the depravity of our human experience and the future hope ought to be our focus. Now, as we enter into Genesis chapter three, the first thing that I want you to see before we get to Genesis chapter three is God graciously provides all that's necessary for Adam and Eve and their offspring. If you can just recall for a moment, Genesis chapters one and two, what we see is God's gracious provision for everything that they need in in terms of work to do, in terms of purpose, in terms of value as God's crowning creation. God prepared for them everything that was necessary for them to live in relation to him. You see, God designed all of his creation with value, meaning, and purpose, which he communicated to man. God's work, which is his creation, and his wisdom, which is his word to them, were his provision for man to live happy and holy. You see, what God established is he established all things by his word and all created things are intended to be sustained by his word. God told them to be fruitful and multiply. God said that they were in the image of himself. God told them to cultivate and to keep the ground. God told them to fill the earth and subdue it. God God told them to have dominion, to be a steward of the creation that he had made. And one of the things that we learn is God's work is always intended to be sustained by God's word. Matthew chapter 10, 29 to 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. What God is demonstrating is that there's not a portion no matter how menial we may think it may be in God's creation. That's outside of his provision. Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 17, the Bible says he is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Christ. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God's work is to be sustained by God's word. Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance, talking about Christ. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Second Peter 3, 5 through 7. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by the means of these 
the world and that, uh, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God's work is always sustained by God's word. And humanity, as the crowning creation of God's work, is no different. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed at the end of Genesis chapter 3 when God had created uh, the world. He had said this is all very good. He had given man meaning, value, and purpose to live in fullness in relation to him. He had provided everything that they needed to be sustained. And the Bible describes them as being naked and unashamed. But sin had a way of reorienting the hearts of man to use the works of God, no longer for the glory of God, but for himself. And now we get to the text in Genesis chapter 3. What we see up to this point is God's gracious provision. And what we see is an interruption. Now the serpent, the Bible says, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? We've really not gotten more sophisticated than that very question in the world in which we live. We continue to ask this question over and over again when we think about therapeutic means or things that we think help people to be healthy. And what it really is, is it's a question of the character of God. You see, the sufficiency of God's revelation is questioned much the same way today as it was in the beginning with this very phrase, did God really say? And and here's the point. The evil one knew very well that the importance of God's word, he knew humanity would be happy and holy living according to God's design as long as they remain tethered to God's provision. I believe that this was genuinely a question of the character of God. The question, did God really say it? It's really asking the question, is the God who made all of this, is he really good? Did he really provide everything that was necessary for you to live a life of sustenance, a life of value, a life of meaning, a life of purpose? Did God really provide those things for you? See, it's a question of God's character as if God himself is sinister, as if God himself is a detriment to man, as if God had left something out that was necessary for man. You see, this contrary wisdom offered by Satan, it really attempted to corrupt man's view of the creation in order to veil the glory of God. You see, the whole purpose was he was using man to veil the glory of God. Why? Because man was made in the image of God. So if we can question God's character and we no longer live according to the sufficient provision of of what God had provided to sustain us as man, what's veiled. The demonstration and reflection of the character and the nature and the glory of our God. What, what happens here is what I call an interpretive parody. What Satan is doing is he's taking the creation that God had clearly described and defined as for himself, for the good of man. And as he describes what, what is intended to be the purpose of creation Satan offers a different interpretation of the data that can be seen with natural eyes. You see, the evil one introduced an entirely different meaning, an entirely different purpose for man and all of God's creation that was disconnected 
from what God had described as his wisdom for creation. You see, the temptation was a denial of God's position and his perspective as both sovereign and good. What I would say to you even today, that question, when people question the sufficiency of the Bible, essentially what they're saying is, did God really offer some level of provision for you for everything that you really need? You see, it's a question that's attempting to veil the glory of God. That as God remakes us and restores us and renews us into his image by justification and sanctification, and we would live a life that's reflective of the character and the nature of God, it's an attempt to veil the glory of God. It's an attempt to redefine the purpose of creation for man, not for the goodness of God. You see, the enemy's appeal was for Adam and Eve to exalt the self to seek wisdom found in creation above God and to question what he revealed to be true about everything that was made. Man was tempted to live independently from God's revelation in order to create meaning, value, and purpose from within the creation itself. Do you see the subtlety? Do you see what happens now? We think our value is found in created things. No wonder we're such a a desperate culture. No wonder we despair and are full of anxiety because we look for meaning, value, and purpose in things that are temporary. Man was tempted to live independently from God's revelation in order to create meaning, value, and purpose. You see, far greater promises than can ever be fulfilled were made by the serpent when he divorced man from God's wisdom. Earthly wisdom is is really similar to what is presented by the evil one in Genesis 3. By nature, uh, changes, uh, it changes the way that we see. It shifts our desires and our delights in the same way that it had that, that effect upon Adam and Eve. It shifts our desires and our delights away from God's meaning and purpose. It shifts the way that we see. The question for you as counselors is how do you see? How do you see life? How do you see people? How do you see God's wisdom? How do you see the data in the world? How do you see God's creation? How do you understand it? You see, it shifts the way that we see. Not that we do not see true things, but that we do not see them truly. You see, that particular fruit from that particular tree had been revealed by God to be in the category of evil. You remember what the Lord said Earlier, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You see, Adam and Eve had a sense of what God was saying was good and evil. Man was intended to live according to God's definition of the created world of what was good and what was evil. They had not experienced evil up until this point in Genesis chapter 3, but they knew what God had described as being good and evil. The Bible actually describes us having discernment, growing in discernment, growing in wisdom, is our ability to discern what God describes as being good and evil. In fact, the Bible in the New Testament describes those uh, as, the, as the days grow cold, as we grow closer to Uh, the end times, what's going to happen? They will call good, evil, and evil what? Good. You see, God's word restores this brokenness. You can see through deceived and delighted eyes, the fruit changes the way that we see it. We now see it not in the category of evil defined by God. We see it now in the category of 
good. And what does the Bible say? The Bible describes it as she delighted in this fruit with her eyes. She took of it and she and she ate. You see, the wisdom of God is in challenges short-sighted as being something that's less than good. It implies that God in some way is sinister, that he's hiding what's best for man from his highest creatures. Accepting this type of earthbound wisdom, in my opinion, is to assume that God's wisdom is folly based on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You see, Satan's simple yet subversive question started a domino effect leading to transgressing God's clear command. The delight of the eye was birthed by a desire in the heart. The desire in the heart was lured and enticed by the question, did God really say? You see, the sin of man begins with a desire to be wise in his own eyes. And it makes creation appear as a delight to fulfill the longings of his heart. Moral judgment. What happens to moral judgment? The Bible says uh, that we have now created a new standard, a new standard by which we think we have to live when human eyes are delighted by the creation and not delighted by its creator. You see, quite the opposite is true in Hebrews 5.14. We grow in wisdom and discernment to know what God says is good and evil. And so we see the question, did God really say And I mean that sincerely. I don't think that we've grown up over that question. When we think of ways to remedy man's problems, we're still asking that question in relation to the sufficiency of what God has graciously provided in his word. Now, what I want you to see is, and this this narrative is very familiar to you, but what I want you to see is look down in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of the tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Actually, Satan was not lying when he said your eyes will be opened. We see that their eyes are opened in just a minute. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. You see, what's happening now is they're no longer seeing with eyes that are spiritual. They're seeing with eyes, as the New Testament describes it, that are natural. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit. They are now seeing with natural eyes. Death has now been infused because of their sin. What Genesis 2 reveals is that Adam and his wife were naked and unashamed before their fall into sin. Yet the effect on their eyes being opened was not the removal of physical sight, but that the world they saw was now interpreted in a radically different way. Jeremiah describes this type of eyesight in Jeremiah 5.21. He says this, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Matthew 13, Seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. You see, good from God's perspective is now seen as evil and vice versa in a world cursed by sin. The guilt that they feel 
now brings about a consciousness of their nakedness in a way that they had not seen before. But natural eyes interpret symptoms as problems. I'm going to say that again. You need to pick that up. Natural eyes always observe symptoms as problems. You see, their attempt to hide and cover themselves falsely limited their problem to something they believed they could treat. They were seeing true things. They were naked. The Bible even tells us in, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, they were seeing true things. But they did not see things truly. I want you to notice the difference as we work through the passage. You see, they treated their nakedness, but they could not cover their guilt and shame. They could not bridge the chasm that separated them with their, in their fellowship with the Lord. They were content with addressing their perceived need with means found in creation. You see, Adam and Eve were simply trusting their natural eyes to diagnose their problem and seek remedy. But only God's word diagnosis and only God's gospel cures. Shaping the diagnosis with natural eyes always misses the beauty of God's provision through his revelation, thereby missing and dismissing the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. This is the way that this happens in a modern sense is integrationists will try to give some intellectual assent to the Bible being an authoritative book. And they'll say, we think the Bible is a great filter. We think the Bible should be set up as a filter, right? And it's in some ways putting the Bible in a place of authority. But what happens is they're taking their natural eyes and and looking to social scientists who the Bible says has natural eyes. And they begin to look at things that they can see, true things that they can see. And they begin to categorize and describe those perceived things, those symptoms that they can see with natural eyes. And they begin to describe those perceived things as the problems themselves. And as they label and diagnose those problems that they see in man under labels of mental health and so on. They take that information and now they say, you know what, with those labels, we're going to run that through the Bible as a filter. And we want to see what comes out on the other side. Does the Bible speak to those particular things? And that's why when you look at the Bible, they feel absolute freedom to do whatever they want with these types of labels, because you don't find bipolar or schizophrenia in the Bible. And so they say, well, we have liberty to Understand man and his problems by some other means of knowledge. You see, once sin entered, Adam and Eve's perception was no longer through the lens of God's revelation to them. And that's the way natural man sees. That's how natural man sees the created world. As we begin to infuse different meaning, different purpose, different value based upon the experiences that we have. David Pallison says it like this. God's point of view places a paradigm shift, a radical interpretation on what worldly people think they see. Worldly people think they see certain things. And I might even give assent to say they sometimes see true things. The problem is they don't see them truly. To be clear, I'm not claiming that man is unable to see true things with their natural eyes. Adam Adam and Eve truly perceived their nakedness. What I'm objecting to is the assumption that man can interpret things as they truly are in God's world without God's special revelation. 
As Cornelius Van Til said, the, the teacher of J. Adams. Now, if anything is obvious from scripture, it's that man is not regarded as a proper judge of God's revelation to him. Because we're blinded. Famous integrationists Stanton Jones and Richard Butman, they help us to see this implication in how they incorporate wisdom from natural eyes. This is what they say. Though the Bible is an essential foundation for a Christian approach to psychotherapy, it is not an all-sufficient guide for the discipline of counseling. The Bible is inspired and precious, but it's also a revelation of limited scope. The main concern of which is religious in its presentation of God's redemptive plan for his people and the great doctrines of the faith. The Bible doesn't claim to reveal everything which human beings want to know. Let me give you a few objections to that. First, if the Bible is not sufficient, then it also has a diminished position of authority over life and truth. Second, the statement above assumes that there are parts of life that are not lived to the glory of God. In other words, they believe that there are parts of life that are not spiritual in relation to living life according to God's design. I don't know how they interpret Colossians 3.17 or 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You cannot square the, the teaching of Scripture with that mentality. That diminishes what we see with our natural eyes and creates some category that's outside of how we are called to live quorum Deo before the face of God. Third, if man's condition is not accurately identified and addressed in the Bible, then sin is not the problem and Christ is not the answer. You see, but the Bible makes very clear that both body and soul will be restored by Christ. This means that the condition of man, the whole of man, is directly related to the curse of sin and hope is therefore to be found in Christ alone. To deny that is to dismiss the scope of the Bible's authority as much as it is to limit the scope of the Bible's sufficiency. And if the Bible is sufficient for life, then our posture and inclination as biblical counselors should be first toward knowing the revelation given by God and trusting him as the one who delivers us out of all of our troubles. You see, limitations on God's word to reveal what's best for the human condition or to be more fully human is to question God's character and obscure what it means to have life more abundant. It's to raise the question, of what Jesus is actually saying in John chapter 10, that he is the good shepherd and he came to give us life more abundant. You see, in my view, this is a practical denial of the ability of God's revelation by his spirit to restore, heal, and grow hurting people. I agree with Pallison's assessment. He says this, specifically in our time in place, secular psychology has intruded into the domain of biblical truth in practice Secular theories and therapies substitute for biblical wisdom and deceive people both inside and outside the church. The false claimants to authority must be exposed and opposed. Preferably, the Bible is better conceptualized as a lens rather than a filter. To see the world through the Bible does not blind us to the world, but it provides a corrective lens to see more clearly the world as God sees it. Not opposed to extra biblical, quote unquote, discoveries that man says that that he has. 
It may challenge our interpretations of Scripture, but it is to never run to those discoveries as if they've discovered true things. It's always to force us back to the Bible so we can see those true things truly from God's perspective. Look at Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. And what does the Bible say they do? And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What we see here is really a demonstration. It's a paradigm by which we see man in his sin groping for means to cover his guilt and shame. This has been an enduring problem of humanity since this moment in Genesis chapter 3. How do we cover our guilt and shame? You see, with his natural eyes, he focuses on his nakedness. He thinks his nakedness is the problem. And what we are introduced to here in Genesis chapter 3 are the folly of man's remedies. The folly of man's remedies. You see, whatever we determine to be the problem of man will always narrow our options for what we believe will be the remedy. In order to better understand this principle... Consider when somebody receives a medical diagnosis. You've been to the doctor. You've received a medical diagnosis. Once you identify a particular ailment, it narrows your options for the type of remedy you choose for treatment. Let's take, for example, that you have a broken arm. If they tell you you, when you have a broken arm that you need chemotherapy, you should be very concerned. (laughs) Because what we believe to be the problem narrows the focus in what we think is the remedy. If they start wanting to put a cast on your arm when you have cancer, you should be more concerned. You see, the point is, whatever we believe to be the problem, it narrows our focus in what we think will be the remedy. The remedies are sought based on what is determined to be the problem. When human problems are reduced to what we can see with our natural eyes, it affects the way and where we search for, for human remedy. Let me illustrate it this way. If you were to think back in Genesis chapter 3, let's just pay attention like, to uh, lots of reality TV shows. you agree? They bore me. I don't know. They're, they're not my favorite thing to do. But let's just say in this moment we're, we're watching Genesis 3 unfold in real time. And you're, you're watching this foolishness unfold, right? And before we start throwing fingers, you and I do the same type of stuff all the time. And let's just say we're watching this unfold, this particular scene here. And Adam and Eve, obviously, because the Bible tells us that they were were naked and unashamed, they commit sin, and now they see their eyes are opened and they are naked. The Bible says that they they see themselves this way. And if we were observing that, we we could come to the same conclusion. Now, as they look at this, they begin to find remedy for what they think is the problem. And They think their problem is nakedness. So what do they do? They start looking about, they minimize their problem in such a way to think that something in creation can help them fix their problem. And so what they start doing is is running to fig leaves. Now, one of the things you have to understand is as soon as a fig leaf is plucked from the tree that that is its life-giving source, what starts happening to the fig leaf? It dies, right? It's temporal, And as you pull the fig leaf and you start covering yourself. Now, if we were to watch this with our natural eyes and they covered themselves with fig leaves. Would you say that they are naked or are they covered? 
You see, with your natural eyes, you would do the same thing as they do. You would say, you know what, that problem that we had, it's fixed. Because now we're, we're covered. That's the way you would interpret that. Because you've reduced the problem down to something that you can understand with your natural eye. But it was far a greater problem than that. As we're going to learn about in a minute. This was a far greater problem than just simply covering yourself with fig leaves. Because the reality is, you will need fig leaves over and over and over. And they never satisfy. What we see later is that God himself enters. And you need to remember what I'm about to say. If you don't see your counselee the way God sees a counselee, then you will be susceptible to temporary earthly remedies. Because the way that we see them with our natural eye, they're covered. But when God enters, how does God see Adam and Eve? The writer of Hebrews describes exactly how they're seen. You know the verse, Hebrews 4, 12. The word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews four thirteen says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, in his reckoning, the fig leaves did not remedy the problem. You see, in God's reckoning, although to every man in this room, it would have fixed the problem. In God's reckoning, it did not fix the problem. You see, methods of counseling are consequential. What we choose to do with hurting people is consequential. How we see the problems that people are facing, it's consequential. Methods are a means that counselors use to accomplish a particular goal in counseling. This is very similar to what we see unfolding before our eyes in Genesis chapter 3. And what we've seen really since the middle of the 1850s is here we are groping about in a, in a religious parody, in an interpretive parody where modern psychology is trying to see people as they think they truly are. And they're groping about by trying to find remedy for those particular problems that are vexations of the soul in the created world, trying to find meaning and purpose and value in the created things and not the creator. So when people argue for sufficiency, many times we will go to 2 Timothy 4, 2 Peter chapter 1, all very valid places. But if you don't begin in Genesis chapter 3, to understand the sufficiency of God's provision and the brokenness of man, all of man, both body and soul, then you will miss the beauty of the provision of God in his special revelation to us. You see, as we we think about this a little bit further, methods in counseling are not neutral. Why? Because methods themselves are not born out of valueless systems. Nor can they be stripped out of their philosophical systems and implemented into another. Think of how foolish it would be if I were to say, you know what, Carl Rogers, you should probably implement some of B.F. Skinner's uh, uh, therapies. You should probably take uh, positive and negative reinforcement, implement that into your, your therapy and see how that works. No, they are completely different philosophical systems in how they see people and how they understand Remedies. These two two therapies have very different value systems. 
Different thoughts about man, man's problems, different means to repair man because of what they believe is broken in man. How much more foolish is it for us as believers to implement these value-laden systems since the stakes are so much higher? You see, when Paul in Colossians When he warns against empty philosophies and vain deceptions, he's not concerned that he will miss something necessary or good from the philosophies of the world. The Apostle Paul is concerned that our hearts and minds will be taken captive by ideas that are competing for the gospel's primacy in our life. See, Paul doesn't offer some sort of framework through which we redeem worldly philosophies or human traditions. Those systems were to be rejected Because they enslave our hearts and minds and they drag us away from the beauty of Christ. Moreover, they blind our mind from seeing God's perspective of good and evil in the world. And this is why Paul follows that exhortation in Colossians 3 to do what? To think on things above, not on things on the earth. You see, the the point that Paul is making is that the kind of growth that we are after is from God, not from worldly philosophies or from created things. Coincidentally, this is exactly the long-term testimony of psychotherapy and psychiatry. If you would understand the history of psychiatry and psychology, the DSM, for example, has been subject of much turmoil since its inception in 1952 and most recently since 2013. With every subsequent revision, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the turmoil increases over and over again. But this has been a part of the history from the humoral theory to the asylum care with bloodletting, spinning chairs and lobotomies to the chemical imbalance theory, to concepts of mental illness that still run rampant today. Biological reductionism, which is the way in which people see others with natural through natural eyes, the diagnostic and statistical manual itself. Each of these secular philosophies has proven to be nothing more than fig leaves. They've proven to be nothing more than trying to gain meaning, value, and purpose in the created things. But as soon as they're plucked, they're a fad and they die. And they have need of something else to fill their place. This is why Pallison explains the danger of these things when he says, different fads and fashions in theory and therapy have been unified by two things. Number one, human beings are not fundamentally sinful. If you don't start here, you'll miss that. You have to start in Genesis 3 to understand that it is in competition with trying to understand why man is broken. From a Christian perspective, Genesis 3 gives you the explanation that you need for why we're broken both body and soul. He goes on to say, and the answer to people's problems lies within the individual or within human relationships. Yet many, I would argue, continue to insist that we pick the fruit of secular thinking. And I'm saying enough of that, that God and his provision has given us exactly what we need because he doesn't just see true things. He sees life truly. Not only are methods not neutral, so we can't just pick and choose like we would fruit to put it in some sort of salad. Means are important to ends. But what I mean by that is what we choose as a means or a method is aiming towards a certain goal. Methods are not neutral because they're always a means to seeking, uh, that we seek to accomplish a particular end. We must be careful to approach God's end in God's ways. You see, desired outcomes never justify ungodly means. 
Because you can't get to true, genuine, godly outcomes by ungodly means. Let me see if I can illustrate that. We see it here certainly unfold before our eyes in Genesis chapter 3. But let me take you to a text in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But you remember the story where the Bible uh, describes now Jesus is, is preparing for his public ministry. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And you know the story of the three temptations. And one of the most interesting things to me when I look at those temptations, the third temptation has always been quite quizzical to me. You see, this third temptation, it's a lesson that warns us that the end does not justify the means we think. The Bible says this again. The devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, talking about Christ and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, that's interesting because the Bible seems to indicate that all the kingdoms of the earth are Christ. What does the Bible say in Psalm chapter 2? I think it makes it very clear that God will make the earth a footstool for the Messiah. They are His. Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow to King Jesus and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 5, 7, 9, 15 all declare this to be true, that all the kingdoms of the earth will be Christ. So what's the temptation? The temptation is in the means. Because what Christ knew is that he had to go to Calvary in order to accomplish the will of God. So the means was just as important as the end. I think we have to think about that when we're, when we're talking about what is true human remedy. What truly repairs us? What truly grows us? What truly restores us? For us, God has cr- clearly described his means and his end I believe in the all-sufficient word. And he demands obedience to his ways through faith in order to please him. The Bible says, not by might, nor by spirit, uh, nor by power, but by his spirit and the word. We do not trust in chariots or in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. One further thing back in Genesis that I want you to see in, in verse 11. Starting in verse 8, getting down to verse 11. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and, and I ate. Now, what's interesting to me, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God had given Adam specifically and then Eve in Genesis 2 particular responsibilities. He told them to be fruitful, multiply. He told them to fill the earth and subdue it. He told them to have dominion over the creation. He told them to cultivate and to keep the ground. He gave them particular responsibilities. And our sin with blinded eyes, we always shun our own personal responsibilities. In fact, I would argue 
that most times when we shun our responsibilities, we're going to find ourselves in big trouble. Because we're going to stop seeing things the way God intends, and we're going to start seeing things that we think fulfill ourselves. I want to ask you a question. How do you think the fruit tasted? You ever wondered that? I even wonder, did the fruit actually fill their bellies? That's a good scientific question, right? Biologically, did the fruit fulfill their bellies? I mean, Adam and Eve had need to be sustained by food, right? But see, here's the deal. God provided them with everything necessary to sustain them. That's why this is asking of the wrong question. And I would argue that there's a true answer to that question. If the fruit tasted good, there's a true answer to that. There's a true answer to this question that did it fill their bellies? I think there's a true answer to that, but it doesn't matter. Because that was not the point for which God had revealed this particular fruit. In God's eyes, this was forbidden to them. You see, biologically, their their bellies may have been filled by the forbidden fruit. Reducing our focus down to biological realities, however, does not always produce the truest meaning of a situation. Them simply assessing that they had need for food and they were going to fill it by whatever means they thought necessary was not the means of God. And that's where they got in to trouble. You see, in our assessment, we must never neglect the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of sin, or the doctrine of salvation. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. You see, giving in to these temptations is always a shunning of responsibilities toward God. Sufficiency and the goodness of God's wisdom is then denied by redefining man's needs or responsibilities. And you see, what's revealed, however, is our discontentment and impatience with the Lord much more than uh, proving any limitations of the sufficiency and vitality of the word of God. I think often we're asking the wrong questions. We're asking questions that are true questions. But they're not questions that will give us the true meaning according to God. You see, I, I won't deny that there are biological factors. The, the danger, however, I think is well stated by Noel Weeks. As soon as we take man's responsibility away, we deny the power of the gospel to help. You see, whenever we begin to shun our personal responsibilities, we deny the power of the gospel to help. And one of the things that we see very clearly in the scripture or very clearly in, in the modern culture, is that psychology itself, one of its greatest contributions to our culture, is that it has removed responsibility from man. And when you remove responsibility from man, what we see is a removal of the beauty of the sufficiency of God's word and its necessity to restore us. One final thing, and then we'll be done. Look at Genesis 3.15. Because in all of this foolishness, In all of the folly that we see unfolding before us, this is a picture of us as humanity. This is a picture of our brokenness moving forward, both body and soul. This is a picture of of the types of people that we really are. But we can't forget Genesis 3, 15. Reading down through 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. One of the most critical things that I think happens in our modern world is Satan tempts us by drawing battle lines in places that don't matter. 
And so we start looking at biological realities thinking that's the battle line, yet we forget what the Bible teaches us in Ephesians chapter 6. The battle is not against flesh and blood. We forget the supernatural realities. We forget to bring those to bear on how we see things truly according to God's word. He goes on in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And I would argue from this point on, what you see is a promise of future hope. You see a promise of future hope. What you see is God's future and present provision. God demonstrated this by his provision immediately for Adam and Eve. And what did he do? The way he saw them in their problem is they were still naked and ashamed before him. And yet God himself provided what was necessary in the form of a sacrifice. Foreshadowing, I hope that we all understand that. Foreshadowing the one who would come as the Lamb of God. Who would give his life as a ransom for us. To shed his blood and to cover us with his righteousness. We who were also naked and ashamed. And in that soulless vexation, our hearts cry out, but we often run from that provision of God, running to the things of the world, trying to clothe ourselves over and over again, only to find ourselves more hopeless. This is the plight that most people come to you for counseling. This is why they come to you for counseling. And you have the provision. Here's what I would argue is when we see with natural eyes, one of the most detrimental things when we see with natural eyes is we have a tendency to exalt science to such a degree that it diminishes what we think is the value, meaning and purpose that God has for life. It hinders the way that we understand what God has provided. You see, all the pernicious effects of this event in Genesis three could not suppress the character of God. What God did was provide a sufficient sacrifice. He provided what was necessary to cover what was broken truly in them. It was through Christ that God uh, has also given us a future promise. I find it interesting that, that we, even in counseling, we diminish future hope. We act as if future hope is not something that is significant. It's significant in this text, but then from this point on throughout the rest of scripture, we are always called to look at what God is doing or will do to rescue us in fullness from all that is broken here. We have a tendency to get so caught up in the minutia of daily life, trying to explain it away with the, the remedies that the world offers. But it is forcing us to lose focus of what God has promised as future hope in Christ. Do you see the scheme of the evil one? Paul reminds us in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says we are waiting for our blessed hope. He's speaking of the return of Christ. This blessed hope is not only in Christ's return, however, but also for our present living. He said, he goes on to say, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright godly lives in this present age. Let me run through a few things very quickly. I'm running long on time. I still have three pages left. We're not going to do it all. I really want you to get some of these principles. I think these are the types of things that are confusing so many in the church. Because our desire for scientific certainty, it's caused us to diminish 
utilizing the Christian doctrine of future hope as a means of comfort and counsel. Christian, don't you ever shy away from clinging to the future hope of Christ and acting if that is something that should be diminished in the modern scientific age. A renewed focus on eschatological hope has value for so many reasons, but I want to highlight four just very quickly and then I'll be done. First, eschatological hope grounds our biblical counsel in reality from God's perspective. When you take the problems that people are facing and you point them in the direction of future hope, you ground them in reality from God's perspective. Second, the power of restoration remains on God and not man. When we point ourselves at the mercy of God's future hope, which he promises to accomplish in fullness for all of us who believe, we place the remedy of the problem in the proper sphere, not on us and what we might be able to accomplish, but on God. The, The key is we have to be content being patient to wait upon God in how he chooses to work in a given situation. Third, eschatological hope helps us to see the beauty and the depth of the sufficiency of the Bible. And then fourth, eschatological hope reminds us that our primary enemies are the world, the flesh, the devil, and death. We don't wage war against flesh and blood. You see, the sacrifice that was given, which was foreshadowing the the once and for all sacrifice that Jude speaks of, it confirmed that fig leaves were inadequate to address the real problem. That God's the one who gives genuine restoration. It's not something that can be found in his creation. It's to be found only in God and his particular ways. And then finally, the the life of the animal foreshadowed the sacrifice of the lamb. Who's to restore all things that are broken in us, both body and soul. I'll conclude with this. In Christian theology, all that is broken in the world is a consequence of what occurred at this moment in Genesis chapter 3. You see, once sin entered into the world, every man is born into sin and is depraved. The world is groaning in its curse and death reigns on the earth. When you're seeing these problems that we're facing consistently, soulless vexation or bodily decay, all of it is a foreshadowing of death. We have to see it through a Christian lens. It's very important. And at that moment, we step outside of this context of Genesis 3 to understand creation and its brokenness. We leave the necessity of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge found in Christ and his word. And I'm begging you. I'm begging you when you have problems of your own. When you see problems that people are facing sitting in front of you. Don't leave the context of Genesis chapter 3 to try and understand it. Make sure that you understand all the brokenness that they're experiencing. It's real. But its backdrop, its explanation is found in the the brokenness that sin brings about. Last thing, all things created and now under the curse of sin, including our human body and soul, can only find full restoration in Christ. If we offer explanation outside of that reality, then Christ is not the redeemer of that particular problem. If, however, sin, both corporate and personal, is the cause of all that's broken, then Christ is the answer, and God's special revelation of Christ is all sufficient for the restoration. This restoration is the subject of counseling and discipleship. And listen, if we miss these key points, 
then the Bible becomes less relevant for daily life. And we fail to see the depth of the kindness of God in providing a sufficient resource for life and godliness. You see, the Lord has provided the sufficient word for this monumental and consequential task of making disciples of the nations. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for our time. Thank you for your word that is very clear. And I pray, Father, that these truths resonate in our heart, that you would use them to help us to see clearly. And Lord, what I pray happens is that as we look to you, we we see the beauty of Christ. We, We see the beauty of the work of Christ. We see the beauty of the word of Christ and its necessity, not optional. It's necessity for restoring everything that we find broken in our life. May it be so among us. May we preach this truth. May we hope in what you promised to bring about because of the work, the death, the burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. May it be so. Help us to be bold in Christ's name. Amen.